0: A brand new Christian came to me years ago. We were engaged in basic discipleship. He had just made a profession of faith. He's, by the way, now, just so you'll know the end of the story, he's now a a marvelous elder in a wonderful PCA church hundreds of miles away from here. But that day as a new Christian, frustrated, he's very transparent with me, and he said the following things. I'm socially awkward. It seems like I blow up most of my relationships. I said, I've seen that. He said, I grew up in a severely dysfunctional home. Every relationship I saw was toxic. I said, I I agree. I know what the home was you grew up in. He said, I never saw good models for relationships. I agreed with him and said, You didn't. And finally, he said, I am completely confused about how to treat others and relate to them. I need help. And he did. And so we turn to the text that we'll be looking at today, 1 Peter 2.17. If you've ever had that conversation or even just had that thought in your inner monologue and thought, relationships are a mystery to me. I just keep stepping in it every day, every relationship. It seems like I I offend people, I hurt them, they hurt me. I just feel like I'm confused. Then this text is speaking to you. What we're going to look at in 1 Peter 2.17 is the simplest possible relational grid and it covers all your relationships. I don't make that as a hyperbolic statement. It covers all your relationships. It's fascinating for its breadth. So let's ask this as a preliminary question. Are they a person who you're thinking about? Yes, then honor them. Are they a brother in Christ? Then love them. Are they a civil ruler? Again, honor them, but doubly so, because they're your superior. But always in the foreground, fear the Lord. Now, what we're going to examine today, and you may think this goes counter to our norm and our stated purpose as a church. We say it on a a very regular basis that we're church for grownups, that we're trying to produce mature believers. But today is milk. Nudge your 12-year-old right now and say, he's... He's talking to you. What we're looking at is milk. These are the basics. These are the fundamentals. There is no hidden meaning in this text. When you look at it, you think maybe it has some mystical meaning. Get that thought out of your mind. Four flat, simple relational statements. There is no riddle here. Do we need to hear them repeatedly? Yes. Will the world agree with us on these? No, none of them. Even many. Christians. Confessing Christians will disagree. But these are milk. These are the entry point. These are foundational truths that speak to all of your relationships. In fact, let me speak to the 56 people who are going to be on that RYM bus tomorrow. You need this just to get on the bus. This has at least two and I think three instructions about how you should live between 6.30 tomorrow morning and 6.30 tomorrow evening. And everyone on that bus will greatly appreciate it if you listen carefully, especially Pastor King and Pastor Anderson. And so I want to seek the Lord together and then I want us to roll up our sleeves and go back to first understandings, milk, basics of all your relationships. Let's seek the Lord now. Our Father, we're weak in faith, and we're curious about things that you tell us are secrets, and we neglect the things that you have revealed to us in your Word. So now by your Holy Spirit, come and strengthen us in our belief and our understanding of your Holy Word. Enable us to shut out all of the distractions that the evil one will throw at us now, so that we might deeply drink from your truth. We pray in the name of our mediator, our prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus, Amen. The first of these four basic admonitions. Who to honor. Honor all people. Look at your text. It's very simple. Honor all people. Now to us, living in 2023, this this hardly warrants stating. But as Peter writes, he lives in the Roman Empire where Rome has 60 million slaves spread out through their empire every one of whom was considered to be by law not a person, but a thing with no rights. So when Peter writes these words, stare at them there in verse 17. Honor all people. They're earth shattering. He is saying add 60 million people to the list of who you will honor. In Romans 13 Peter's fellow apostle, the the apostle Paul, commands us to give honor to whom it is due. So who should you honor? All people. View them as equals. Our larger catechism, question 131, says, What are the duties of equals? This is our public theology. The duties of equals are to regard the dignity and worth of each other and give honor to go one before another, to rejoice in one another's gifts and advancements as their own. Now, we know how to dishonor someone. In fact, I can give you a lesson in dishonor between now and your house when you drive home at noon. Just turn on talk radio or turn on cable news and you will hear dishonor spewed wall to wall. We know how to do it. In fact, we come out of the womb knowing how to dishonor. This is nothing new. James addresses this in James 2, speaks of those who dishonored the poor just because they were lowly, not recognizing that God is usually pleased to save the lowly. But listen carefully. When Peter tells you to honor all men, the Lord himself bestows honor on people. Jesus says in John 12, if anyone serves me, the Lord, the Father will honor him. So if the Lord has no problem honoring other men, considering his great glory, why are you so apt to, di- to dishonor each other? And so again, milk, basics, how to honor. How do you do it? How do you obey this command? Well, first is, and a huge portion of honor is simply the way you speak to them. Your tone of voice, yes ma'am, no sir. But it also includes actions of honor. This is why, for example, Leviticus 19 tells you to rise up before the gray-headed. You should honor those who are your superiors. You should hold doors for others. Look out for their rights. Doing good to them as you have opportunity. Paul sums it up in Romans 12 and he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Now, here comes the why question. Why honor all men? Why should should you honor someone, anyone, all men? Because everyone you will ever meet possesses the image of God. The Bible teaches the sanctity of life of every single person you'll ever meet. We believe every person is worthy of honor because the Bible says that every person in or out of the womb is made in the image of God. Men are honorable because Christ took our flesh and his risen human nature sits on the throne of heaven. It's interesting that the first truth that's taught in depth in scripture is this, that we are made in the image of God. Look at your Bible. Keep one finger and look at Genesis 1. And I want you to notice how much it's taught before you get out of the first chapter of the Bible. This may be basic and it may be milk but it is foundational. Four times in Genesis 1, four times in the span of two verses, notice how the Lord repeats himself over and over and over again so that this is drilled into our brain and we get it okay. Everyone is an image bearer. Look at what the Lord says in Genesis 1, and 27. First, God said, let us make man in our image. That's an intertrinitarian conversation, and we see it there in verse 26. Man is made in God's image. Secondly, according to our likeness. That's just a synonym of what was said. Thirdly, so God created man in his own image. Fourthly, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so you can't get out of Genesis 1 without being taught this that every person you'll ever meet is honorable. Here in Genesis 1, man is portrayed as the immediate creation of God and the object of God's special attention and care. Being an image bearer is what, by the way, enables reciprocal communication between God and man, between creator and creature. He can speak to you in his word, and you can speak to him in prayer, and you can understand one another. What is the image of God? It's the mental and moral likeness to God. Men can think and they can know right and wrong. Furthermore, every person you'll ever meet is worthy of honor because God teaches that God, the word teaches that God has placed supreme dignity upon them. For example, the psalmist writes in Psalm eight, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. Everyone you'll encounter today, tomorrow, on that bus tomorrow, no matter their color, their age, their social status, their educational attainment, they have worth and dignity, and they need to be treated like it. They must be honored by you. One of the most troubling things I see that marks believers is when Christians treat invisible people to them, waiters, counter service, clerks, Janitors, as if they're invisible, throwaway people. No matter how worthless or debased or temporary you think a person is, you're under holy orders. Look at the first admonition in your text in First Peter, Peter 2, to honor them. In fact, I went on a quest thinking, who's the most dishonorable person that you would ever run into? I think I may have known who it was until he died recently. A Hajj. Haven't heard of him? He's the hero of every 12-year-old boy. He recently died at the age of 94. He was an Iranian man who was not, who is known for not bathing for 61 years. He feared that soap and water might cause diseases. He ate meat from dead animals he found. His favorite was rotten porcupine carcasses. He drank water from puddles. He smoked a pipe made of animal dung and he lived in a hole that he had dug for himself. He had a face and a beard caked in mustard brown earth that blended into the barren landscape, and his neighbor said when he sat still, he resembled a rock. To manage his hair when it grew, he would burn off the excesses with a flame. He died a few days after washing for the first time in 61 years, finally having been persuaded by his neighbors to do so, But as filthy and degraded as he was, he was made in the image of God and worthy of honor. God's first admonition to you is, honor all men. You will never run into a person who is worthy of your dishonor. Second, admonition. Honor the king, or in our case, the civil ruler. In Peter's case, it would have been Nero. That brutal, homosexual, oppressive tyrant. Don't say to me, but Carl, our president, our Supreme Court justice, our governor, our senator, they're not worthy of honor. And you think Nero was? In fact, you owe them double honor. Look at the back of your hymnal right now. Look on page 956 to our confession, our larger catechism, question 127 page 956, and I want you to notice, again, I say this frequently because this is the confession that all our elders, all our deacons, all our pastors have sworn an oath and said, this is my doctrine. This will be my practice. Question 127, what is the honor that inferiors, that's you and me, owe to their superiors, that is the president, the governor, the senator, the judge, The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to, defense, and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their special several ranks and the nature of their places. Listen carefully. Bearing with their infirmities covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. We honor the president, the governor, the king, the senator because God established the civil sphere and the concept of magistrate. Governmental authority did not originate in a social compact. It does not derive from the consent of the governed or from the power of some to make their will dominant over others. That idea is not of human origin, but from God. God's intention, listen carefully, is that fallen imperfect men are to rule over others. He has authoritatively established this idea. Any person who's in power is there because of the sovereign will of God. <clears throat> however they come to power, however they abuse it, Their authorities of God. That's why Daniel can write in Daniel 4, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men and he gives them to whoever he will. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 calls the magistrate God's minister three times. This couldn't be the case unless he had his authority from God. You must honor them because they are the Lord's anointed. Three times in 1 Samuel. That's the title given to the civil magistrate, the Lord's anointed. And so we're stepping things up. We have the four admonitions to you today. The basics of relationship. Honor all men. Now let's step up. Give double honor to the king, to rulers. Because not only are they people, they're your superior. And so you owe them honor twice. But now the admonitions get difficult and close to home. Look at the third one. Love the brotherhood. Now in saying this, Peter is agreeing with every one of the New Testament apostolic writers. You know what Paul says, he says it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says it in Colossians 3, above all things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. The writer of Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue. Peter already has said in chapter 1 verse 22, love one another fervently with a pure heart. In John, 1 John says, love one another as Christ gave us commandment. So let me tell you, as you look around this room, I want to disabuse you forever of this notion. If you think that your function in coming to church is about you, Carl, I want to come, I want to hear a good sermon, preferably not too long. I want to hear music that I really like, and I want to have some good snacks, and then I want to go home and be left alone. Then you have misunderstood the function and nature of the church. Part of why you gather, why it was so important for us to gather during COVID is so we could obey this imperative. You can't love people from long distance. You have to be up close. And when you look around right now, you look around thinking, I never even looked at these people. Carl, I'm just looking at you. I'm listening to the, the, the sermon. I'm listening to the music. And then I duck out as quickly as I can. Carl, I'm looking around. I'm thinking, love them? Let me remind you, the church is not made up of natural friends. But of natural enemies. We come from different backgrounds academically. There are high school dropouts in this room and there are PhDs in this room. We come from different incomes. In this congregation, there are millionaires and there are people on government assistance. We come from different, different ethnicities. Just in this congregation, we've had South Americans, Central Americans, North Americans, Eastern and Western Europeans, Africans, Asians, Indians, Arabs, Jews, and like myself, kind of mongrelized Americans. We have different vocations attorneys and physicians, carpenters and engineers, factory line workers and social workers, pharmacists and farmers and people who would like to have a vocation. We come from different tastes and different preferences. Some like barbecue and some don't. Now that's a sticking point for with me. We come together not because we have a natural affinity, but because we have a supernatural affinity. The one thing you have in common with all these people, look around and you won't find any other thing in common besides the fact they're a person made in the image of God. The one thing you have in common with these people is you've all been redeemed by Christ and you have a common allegiance. If Christian love were nothing more than the shared affection of mutually compatible people, it'd be indistinguishable from pagan love for pagans. The reason why Christian love stands out is it is a display for Jesus' sake of mutual love among social incompatibles. You'll notice that the Lord commands his people to love specific people. And that's a sticking point with some of you, that the Lord commands you to love certain people. I'm not gonna give you all the historic and philosophical background, but you've been trained by the world to think that love cannot be commanded. It must arise spontaneously. comes from Rousseau. The idea is over 300 years old that the only way you can love somebody is if you fall backwards into love. It's always, by the way, with somebody attractive and pleasing. But what the scriptures teach is that love is not an autonomous self-acting agency, which is supreme and can decide whom it will love and not love. What we're being taught in this text is God objectively dictates who we must love because he's the sovereign Lord. And just as he sets his love on the unattractive and foolish, he commands us to love those same people, namely his elect. In fact, Jesus made this so important, he gave this as his new commandment in John 13, just before he went to the cross. He said that night, that Thursday night, a new commandment I'm giving you that you love one another as I have loved you. You love also one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Let me remind you what love is. Love is a fruit, an evidence of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, which causes us to labor both for the temporal and eternal good of one another and promote their welfare above my own. Now, let me say that again because it's a mouthful, but it's vital. Because if I were to stop many of you in the hall and say, give me a definition of love, you'd just say... Ooh, it's that gushy feeling I get. No, listen once again. Love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, which causes you to labor for the temporal, eternal good of one another and promote their welfare above your own. Love is sacrificial. John says in 1 John 3, By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love is not talk, it's not good wishes, it's not an emotion, it's an action. That's why John will say in 1 John 3, 18, Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. Love never says to the needy, be warmed and be filled, but love cares and feeds and provides and gives. Then you know Paul's exquisite hymn of praise to this attribute of love. Love is long-suffering. Love is kind. Love is not rude. Love is not easily provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, endures all things, hopes all things. Love never fails. But then comes the fourth and final admonition. We've seen who to honor all men and then a step up and a more intense honor to honor the magistrate, honor the ruler. We've seen who to love, to love the brotherhood, and so now we've moved beyond honor to love. Loving is much higher commitment and mandate than just honoring. But now the fourth step is the step that applies to all believers. It is to fear God. When I say this, I realize that many of you have no idea what I'm speaking of. The Christian church in 2023 in the West is marked by a distinct absence of the fear of the Lord. I can't keep up with them, they're coming so fast, but recently the Church of England made another silly pronouncement. By the way, between when I wrote that down and this week, when the bishop of the Church of England said, let's change the preface to the Lord's Prayer from our Father to our something else. So that's the newest silly pronouncement to be used in worship. But before that, the Church of England voted by their bishops to create a liturgy for persons switching gender. To take over a Sunday worship service to celebrate this momentous change so that the church would all have to celebrate with them. As I read this declaration from the bishops, I kept looking for a signal because sometimes I'm that slow guy who doesn't realize, oh, this is the Babylon Bee. And I don't get that it's parody. And so when I was reading this, I thought, This is a spoof. I get it. You're not going to get me. But I read through to the end and it said, comes from Anglican News Service. These were the bishops solemnly voting to rejoice in sexual aberration and to do it in the context of Lord's Day morning worship. Worship itself, even in much of the church has become consumed with meeting man's needs, not reverencing a mighty and majestic and fearful God. And so the very core of church life has morphed from the very fear of the Lord to the exaltation of man, his problems, his thoughts, his experiences. And instead of being in awe in the presence of a holy God, it is the presence of other worshipers that calls for our attention. And so we have endless days of recognition. This is how you know the church has lost the fear of God. Because instead of 52 mornings, 52 evenings a year, being all about the fear and the worship and the reverence of God, we have services for Mother's Day, Father's Day, Veterans Day, Armistice Day, Flag Day, Boy Scout Sunday, Washington's birthday, Lincoln's birthday, Arbor Day, MLK Day, Independence Day, and now Gender Transition Day. Elaborate rituals followed by sermons missing scripture but heavy on psychology. In a previous generation, it would have been common to describe a mature Christian as one who feared the Lord. I remember my parents drive home. They would have been talking to a mature believer at church. And my dad would say, this is mom and dad's conversation. This was, I didn't realize what was going on. This was the highest praise they had. Dad would look at mom and he'd say, he's a God-fearing man. And mom would look back and say, and he knows his Bible too. That was as good as it got in Gordon and Janice Robbins' car. And that was normal. He fears the Lord. But now if that assessment is given, it's thought that such a person is neurotic and guilt-ridden. John Murray, read anything of his you can find. John Murray began his discussion of this subject by painting with a broad brush and says these words. The fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. Now if that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is new to you, perhaps you haven't listened closely to the frequency of its occurrence in Scripture. 175 direct references and over 500 indirect references to this one concept, the fear of the Lord. At the very core and center of the Christian faith is the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 1-7, we're told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To be ignorant of the fear of the Lord is to be ignorant of a most basic and foundational doctrine of Christianity. It's just the beginning. You make no progress in the Christian life until you learn the fear of the Lord. Think about how the fear of the Lord runs through the Bible. By the way, many have seen this is the theme of Proverbs. In Proverbs 3, we're told, given an imperative to fear the Lord, and then we are told, fearing the Lord is the antithesis to being wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 15 says that the fear of the Lord with the humblest of circumstances is better than immense wealth. Proverbs 19 says the fear of the Lord is the path to life and produces satisfaction. Proverbs 31, the sum of the chapter on the virtuous woman She doesn't place her trust or weight on her beauty, but she fears the Lord. And then this runs all the way through the Old Testament. In Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law Jethro gives him brilliant counsel on selecting rulers and judges. And he comes down to this core qualification. They must be men who fear God. In Joshua 24, we'll get there, I promise, probably by next year on Sunday nights. But that closing exhortation from that holy warrior Joshua, plain spoken, military genius, he cuts down to the core of the Christian life and Joshua says, this is closing exhortation to Israel, fear God and serve him in sincerity. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 12, here's the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and keep his commandments. The fear of the Lord is, you're thinking right now, Carl, I see you, I'm playing mental chess with you. I've checkmated you. Every reference you've made to the fear of the Lord is all Old Testament. Gotcha. You'd be wrong. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus commands his disciples to fear God. In Luke chapter 1, Mary's magnificent. She praises God for his dread and his fear while Jesus is still in her womb. In Acts chapter 9, listen to how Luke characterizes a healthy church. The fear of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the most delightful references to the fear of God to show you that this is not just an Old Testament phenomenon, it's an eternal phenomenon. Repeatedly in the book of Revelation, God pulls back the curtain and he lets you peek in and see into heaven what heaven is like, will be like. And in Revelation 15, <coughs> we are told that the fear of the Lord will mark the worship of the redeemed in heaven throughout eternity. In Revelation 19, indeed, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the dominant characteristic of the inhabitants of glory. Now, I've delayed up until this moment defining the fear of God. Let me give you a couple of definitions. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence. Did you hear those two words? Affectionate reverence. By which the child of God bends himself humbly to his father's law. The Father's wrath is so bitter and His love is so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please Him. That's stolen from Charles Bridges. John Murray defines the fear of the Lord even tighter. He says, the fear of the Lord is on reverence, honor and worship, fully exercised. The Hebrew word used for the fear of the Lord in Proverbs 1 verse 7 means both terror and reverence. In the fear of the Lord, we can see it in action in the lives of several saints. For example, in Isaiah chapter 6, in that famous throne scene, when Isaiah is ushered into the throne, and there is Christ, the second person of the Godhead, high and lifted up. And the angels encircle his throne, and they cover their eyes because Christ is too holy to look upon. And they cry out to one another, Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. When Isaiah steps into the throne room, his first words are words of fear, dread, awe, reverence, because Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Do you know anything of that sort of fear of the Lord? Or Moses. Sandy and I and our grandkids were reading this last night. In our Bible reading in Exodus chapter three. When Moses came upon the burning bush, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, take off your shoes, where you're standing is holy ground. And Moses responded by hiding his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This was not just reverence, it included a holy dread. Or a third example, Peter. In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus told his disciples to put down their nets one more time after a night of fruitless fishing. And reluctantly, Peter agreed, even though he privately thought, what does Jesus know about fishing? And when they caught so many fish that their nets were breaking, how did they respond? Leap for joy? Throw a party? Give Jesus a high five? No. Peter dropped to his knees in the boat and said, Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Isaiah, Moses, Peter, giants of the faith, all experienced this fear of the Lord as a result of God drawing near to them. If you fear the Lord, you understand and acknowledge that he is the creator and you're but a creature, and that will be the case for all eternity. If you fear the Lord, you will obey his word joyfully Completely, immediately, knowing that delayed obedience is disobedience, displeases him, breaks our fellowship, and invites his chastening. If you fear the Lord, you'll understand that this fear is not the servile fear of a cringing slave before a cruel master, but the reverential fear of a loving child before a loving parent. I said as we began the sermon, this is milk, this is the beginning. And that's the case because, as Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is like learning your ABCs. The ABCs are the beginning of all reading and writing, but you never outgrow them. If you're reading the most philosophical, complex scientific treatise, you're still using the ABCs. The fear of the Lord in the life of the Christian is the starting point the appointed door you walk through, the foundation you build upon, but you never leave it or outgrow it. To be devoid of the fear of the Lord is to be devoid of all biblical religion. In Romans 3, when the Apostle Paul is reeling off his lengthy description of the lost man, his final nail in the coffin to describe the lost man is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Even the simplest person here today can see the predominance this theme has in scripture. If you're here and you know nothing of the fear of God, let me urge you, when we pray in just a moment, to cry out to God this morning and say, Lord, give me that blessing of the new covenant, gospel fear. How do we apply this word? Simple, four, brief, ultra-brief admonitions. This is the beginning, the foundation of discipleship for the believer, the guide to every one of your relationships. You won't find a relationship that's missing. Everyone you know is included in at least one, some, two, or more of these categories. So first, application. Don't get your marching orders confused. We are to fear God but to not fear men. Honor men, yes. Love Christian men, yes. But we are repeatedly commanded to not fear men. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 12? Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Speaking of the Father. Yes, fear him. We're repeatedly ordered to fear God but never man. Never man. This is no small distinction. I know so many parents, even some in this room, who have made their children fearful of man because they, mom and dad, are riddled with fears. Fear of embarrassment or shame. Oh, what will they think of me? Fear of persecution or pain. Fear of the unknown. Not fearing the Lord, but fearing man. And they are doing a really good job of generationally transmitting these habits and creating fearful children who will be more fearful than they are because these habits get hardened as they're passed down generation by generation. What will happen if you fear men? Proverbs 29 sums it up quickly. The fear of man brings a snare. Fearing men is always a trap. If you fear men, you'll always be seeking to appease them or please them. But man-pleasing is constantly condemned in Scripture. First application is, don't get your marching orders confused. Don't fear a man on this planet. I fear God. Second application. Strive as a spiritual discipline, to maintain a consistent fear of the Lord, even striving to advance in it. We believe in progressive sanctification. And so 60-year-old, that means that you should be marked infinitely more by the fear of the Lord than your 35-year-old child. That's why Paul can write in Second Corinthians 7 that we are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. As we grow in sanctification, we should be growing in the fear of God. That's why Luke writes in Acts 9 that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord. The measure of growth, listen to me carefully, (coughs) the measure of growth of any individual, any congregation, any ministry is the measure by which they are increasing in the fear of the Lord. Third application, one of your marching orders is to love the brethren. A congregation that understands love will be a congregation that's hospitable. How can you love people if you don't even know them or spend time with them? And so let me encourage you, look around this room today. I realize this is incredibly difficult. Sandy and I listened to a book about introversion on as we were driving to General Assembly about a month ago, and the biggest laugh we got out of it is psychobabble, of course. The biggest laugh was the woman said she put on a button for her year of forced extroversion. And the button said, I talk to strangers, please don't be afraid of me. Well, some of you need that button. Some of you have walked by people for five years, 10 years? 20 years? How can you obey this simple admonition to love the brotherhood if you don't know their name? If you can't speak to them? Well, it's easy to say, "I, I just love those people down at Woodford. Great, what's their name? Oh, I don't know, but they smell so good. And they look like they're really sweet people. Well, maybe you should try speaking to them. That might change your mind about them. But, since God has put you in this congregation, this is the brotherhood that you're to love, not some mythical nebulous brotherhood. These people, the people inside these walls, and I'll include the choir room. They're sort of in purgatory this morning, but love them as well. But determine today, since God has put me in this congregation, I'm going to love these people. And not just in talk, but in deeds. Much of love is willingness to be imposed on. So I'm going to invite initiate, fix dinner, be put out of my comfort zone because love serves one another. I'm going to have a plan to have these folks in my home for lunch on Sunday or dinner on Monday and begin to know and serve them because I understand this is just the basics. That a holy God has commanded me to love the brotherhood. Let's pray together. Our Father, have mercy on us. We have not honored all men. In fact, we've been very effective at dishonoring far too many of your image bearers. We've certainly not honored our rulers. We've dishonored them. We've not even loved the brethren very well. But, oh Lord, especially, have mercy upon us because we have not feared you in a way that gives you reverence. And so, Lord, we come to you pleading for the help of the Spirit. Lord, we need to relearn the very basics We ask for the help of the Spirit that he would be bringing this verse, these four simple admonitions, to our mind day after day this week that the Spirit would haunt us by these words, that we might be busy about our most fundamental callings. We pray for our children as they grow up in this church, that they would grow up understanding these very basics, and so they would far surpass us, their parents and grandparents, in holiness and gospel effectiveness.